So I've recently been going through kind of skimming a book called The Master and His Emissary. And in that book, the guy talks about how the modern world has a lot of symptoms of schizophrenia. That schizophrenia is a situation where people zoom in so far to their own mind that things don't hold together anymore. And I think about, I don't know if you've ever done this, maybe as a kid or, or whatever. Have you ever thought about a word so long and like stared at a word so long that it doesn't seem to make sense anymore? That, you know, it's sort of that, that our world is so fractured, that our beliefs are so fractured, and that, you know, our world just has so little coherence. You can see this in the way that people uh, live with just such a high level of confusion about what it means to be a man or a woman or, or any of that. Like, we just live in a time of complete confusion. Instead of experiencing life, experiencing ourselves as a part of a neighborhood, and that neighborhood as a part of a town, and that town as a part of a, a state and a nation, and, and all of those things, like, instead of feeling like we're somewhere, that we belong somewhere, that we have cut down all of those things that sewed us together, whether it be religion, whether it be um, you know, socialization with neighbors or whatever it is that we've cut all of those ties. And so now we live in sort of a world where it's only us, where we're kind of the god of a snow globe rather than being, you know, a tiny part of a massive world. Rather than kind of experience things, we experience that we're experiencing them. Like we are always in the commentator seat rather than on the field. You know, we're always in the stands, never on the field. And you see that in the way that, you know, a physical hobby is replaced by a virtual hobby, where a physical interaction with a friend is replaced by a virtual interaction with a friend that as modern life goes the way it does, that everything is becoming a simulation of a real thing rather than a real thing. And it's just natural that as a part of that, we're not going to feel sane. We're not going to feel like we know where we are, like we know who we are, that we are someone that fits somewhere. I want to read something that he said about the definition of schizophrenia and see if this sounds at all like where the modern world is today. Schizophrenia has nothing to do with split personality. The phrase might better be rendered as having a shattered mind. Indeed, the word shattered picks up well one of the condition's cardinal features, the loss of a faculty of seeing things as a whole. Everything has to be broken down into parts. Thought processes lose their coherence. Emotions are absent altogether. Or similarly, they fail to cohere. Most strikingly, there is an alternate relationship with reality, which is characterized by delusions and hallucinations. What is real becomes uncertain. Nothing can be trusted. The world becomes frightening and alien. Ulrich, the anti-hero of Musil's The Man Without Qualities, describes being so aware of the leaps that attention takes, the exertion of the eye muscles, the pendulum movements of the psyche occurring at every moment that just keeping his body vertical in the street takes a tremendous effort. This puts one in mind of the psychological identification of one of the core abnormalities in schizophrenia as being the attempt to perform a normally automatic process consciously. The drawing together of the fragments of experience, the relating of those experiences to memory and emotion, and the ability to feel them concretely and immediately, these are what give meaning. 
to our experience. An excess of self-consciousness with a corresponding accent on being too cerebral leads us to a distancing of the self from reality and to a loss of meaning. What has arisen is a world of qualities without a man, of experiences without someone to experience them. The belief that the most important thing about experience is the experiencing of it, and about deeds, the doing of them, is beginning to strike people as naive. The inability to inhabit one's own experience conveys both the strange sense of emptiness and alienation of the schizophrenic and an important element in many modernist and postmodernist perspectives. Like schizophrenics, we oscillate between omnipotence and impotence. Everything we experience, we create ourselves. Yet, on closer inspection, those selves turn out to be a mirage. Schizophrenics described an emptying out of meaning. They may feel themselves entirely emptied of emotion, too, except for a pervasive feeling of anxiety or nausea in the face of the sheer existence of things. Bizarre, shocking, and painful ideas or actions may be welcomed as a way to try to relieve the state of numb isolation. And I think that's a haunting but accurate view of the modern psyche, of the modern view on life. Nothing is absolute if we are our God. When you kill God, when you kill this central figure that everything bends to, when you let yourself think that maybe you're the central figure that everything bends to, then it has its perks, but it has its drawbacks. That you know that if reality is only what you create in your mind for it to be, if the only meaning in life is the meaning that you create in your mind, then you know that each thing you do create is as flawed as you are. If you are the only thing that is real, then nothing can help you. Because each thing you create that should, in theory, help you can't. Because it all is flawed in the way that you are flawed, that I am flawed. And so as we have allowed ourselves to take the place of God, we have given in to an unbelievable level of anxiety, an unbelievable level of chaos because we're playing at a game that we were not designed for. So I want to read a piece by G.K. Chesterton. It's from one of his books, um, which is called Man Alive. This is a fictional story, um, but I think it has a really deep significance as to what it means to have a true and beautiful life. I'm going to jump in here in the middle. In the early 1900s, as is the case today, Many among the intellectual elite regarded death as the end of man's existence. They fatalistically believed that the purpose of one's life is to, in the end, die. In effect, there would be no enduring meaning to human life. Good deeds, pleasure, friendship, and other such banalities were trivial and soon tasteless bribes that bring us into the torture chamber of death. They consequently believed that God was also dead non-existent, since any type of immortality was, in their view, impossible. They dreaded looking up at the stars at night, seeing only the immensity of the cosmic machine. It is no wonder, then, that Chesterton begins his character Smith's story with his college days in Cambridge. 
specifically taking his character back to a discussion with his professor, Dr. Emerson Eames. As a young student, Smith doubted that there was a purpose to life, and so he became paralyzed with fear. He desperately reached for some explanation for those vulgar people who want to enjoy life as they enjoy gin, but they never find true happiness. Hoping to find an answer to his burning question, Smith brought his trouble to his professor, Dr. Eames. The professor, unfortunately, was not much help. He patiently explained to Smith that if there was really a merciful God, he would strike us dead immediately, because human life is both meaningless and painful, somewhat akin to a puppy slowly drowning in water. All thinkers are pessimist thinkers, his professor told him. Unfortunately for his professor, Smith understood him perfectly. Too well, in fact. After reflecting for a bit on the professor's words, Smith removed a gun from his coat pocket and pointed it directly at his teacher's head. Brandishing his gun and blathering on about the futility of life, Smith forced his professor out onto the balcony, on which the professor clung to a gargoyle, holding on for dear life. Making sense in a mad sort of way, Smith told his professor that he was doing him a favor by putting him out of his misery. It's not a thing I do for everyone, he shouted. It's the only cure for life. His macabre but brutally logical interpretation of the professor's philosophy. But then, before he finished his mad justification for murder, something astonishing happened. The sun began to rise. The soft yellow light fell onto the streets, the rooftops, and the spires of Cambridge, transforming the previously grim landscape into a sort of fairyland. The copper ornaments, the green enamel, the blue slates of the church roof, and the scarlet tiles of a villa had something oddly individual and significant about them, and it arrested the rolling eyes of the professor as he looked around on the morning and accepted it as his last. For the first time in the professor's life, he began to care about more than just the outward appearance of the houses of Cambridge. Now he cared about the people who lived in them as well. He began to see them in a new light. Something happened to Smith, too, who decided not to kill his professor after all. Instead, he ordered his professor to thank God for the villas and the vulgar people. His professor wholeheartedly did so. In that moment of sunrise, both Smith and his professor discovered something new about life. The sheer joy of existence itself. Before that moment, his professor had not loved his life. Rather, he had stubbornly clung to it because he feared death. But his professor realized that true living meant more than merely avoiding death. Instead, it meant choosing life. As he awaited his imminent death there on the balcony... His eyes let him see, really see, for the first time, the everyday beauties that he had never before noticed. Gray clouds that turned pink, and the little gilt clock in the crack between the houses. Smith confessed that if he hadn't seen the gleam in the professor's eyes, he would have gone through with the plan, killing both himself and his teacher, as he saw nothing in life that he would have missed. And so Smith and his professor went to the brink of death together and discovered that there was something about life that made it worth the living. After his brush with death, his professor raced around the streets of Cambridge, noticing all the wonderful little things he had never before noticed. Neither Smith nor his professor 
any longer gave thought to defining death. Rather, they merely concluded that death, whatever it is, keeps humanity young, and knowing that we will one day have to face it, forces us to love and truly appreciate life. In this way, they reasoned, God created death to keep our hearts youthful at this, the beginning of our eternal journey. And so, in this rather odd fashion, both Eames and Smith came eventually to Christianity, through the barrel of a gun and a sunrise. Joy, they discovered, was at the core of existence. And so, they concluded that the Christian message of hope, love, and eternal life had to be true. This, of course, is meant to be a fantastical example. Chesterton does not mean for us to go around shooting people in order to make them happy. Instead, his character, Innocent Smith, serves as an example of how to break free of the monotony and meaninglessness of modern life, radically reinventing the humdrum reality of this world and seeing behind it all the God who created it in the first place. We too, Chesterton says, can live life as if we were clinging to a gargoyle, four stories up, with a pistol pointed at our head. In short, we can come to love the beauty of life so much that we would hate to leave it. In this way, death, paradoxically, can keep us young, and instead of clinging fearfully to life, we can choose it merely for the joy of living. As Chesterton said, I don't deny that there should be priests to remind men that they will one day die. I only say that at certain times it is necessary to have another kind of priests called poets, to remind men that they are not dead yet. As that dawn in Cambridge began, so did a new life for Smith. He decided that he would become a gift giver, surprising the world into joy, and, quote, holding a pistol to the head of modern man. This is what he did to the doctor at the boarding house, which spurred the trial. But another charge brought against him was desertion, that he abandoned his wife and kids to pursue his own interest abroad. On a sudden whim, Smith had run out of the door of his house, shouting that he would find a better wife with redder hair and a better house with a finer garden. For any normal human being, this would seem like quite good evidence of desertion. For Smith, however, it was all part of a larger plan. Smith said he wanted to take the round road home that day. He decided that in order to truly value his wife, his children, and his house, he would have to find out what it felt like to have a home. In other words, he needed to break through the labels that are home and family and learn what it feels like to want to come back to something. In typical humorous Chesterton fashion, Smith does this by interacting with people he meets along the way from France, Russia, China, and California and discussing with them the meaning of home and heaven. Along the way, he met a Russian, and the Russian asked him, If you've already freed yourself from your attachments at home, then why shouldn't you take greater advantage of your newfound freedom? You have the right to leave it all behind, like the clippings of your hair. But Smith, however, would have nothing of it. In fact, he realized that the Russian's questions made him finally realize how terribly wrong it is for a man to run away from his wife. It is very dangerous, he concludes, because then nobody can find him, and we all want to be found. Before leaving home, Smith was unable to find a real connection with his family. Although he did honestly love his wife and children, they seemed not only distant, but unattainable. I seemed like a cold ghost. He said, I wanted to become a pilgrim, to cure myself of being in exile. 
As he grew closer to England, he desired his family and his homeland more and more. As a result, he realized that God has given us the love of special places, of a native land for a good reason. God gave us houses and gardens and families to love so that we would not be tempted to worship what we do not have. Standing on a precipice in the Sierras, Smith finally realized that the abyss of nothingness below him is precisely the opposite of what it feels like to be familiar. We have homes, he concluded, so that we can love one spot and serve it. That paradise is somewhere and not anywhere. That it's something and not anything. Having a home to come back to, Smith discovered, is a basic human desire, which makes up an essential part of who we are. He broke into his own house and was charged with burglary. He remarried his own wife several times and was accused of polygamy. Odd as these actions may be, you will by now have guessed why he did them, in order to truly appreciate what he already had, instead of futilely longing for what he didn't need. And he did them, in a sense, to feel the joy of the commandments of God. By breaking into his own house and drinking his own cheap wine, he felt the thrill of having what he already had. And by pretending not to be married, he reminded himself that he was. And what a joy it is to be married. To have your own home and your own goods. What a joy it is to be alive. Even now he may seem like a madman to you. He did, after all, destroy nearly all preconceived notions of normalcy, imparting the surprise and excitement of vigorous life to what we are used to thinking of boring old creeds and rules. But this, in fact, is the way that God should be followed, with exhilaration and a sense of joyful mystery. As Chesterton put it, the supreme adventure is not falling in love. The supreme adventure is being born. By the act of being born, we step into a world which is incalculable, into a world which has its own strange laws, into a world which could do without us, into a world that we have not made. In other words, we step into a fairy tale. I think this is a really beautiful piece about what it means to see the beauty and the joy of life and how we might, by valuing somewhere, more than anywhere, by being someone more than anyone, may we begin to value that we are a son or a daughter in the grand story that God is playing out over the thousands and indeed millions of years, rather than try to play the God of a tiny dysfunctional kingdom inside our snow globe. May we die to the things that keep us with inward eyes so that we may choose life, we may leave the fear of our mind, the fear of our failures, that we may leave the internal insanity of what it means to live inside our own head, and to come to God with all our fears, with all our failures, and say, help me. I love you guys.